verse, Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to uh, 34. 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Thanks, Sam. Um, If we could keep our Bibles open at Luke 18, that would be fantastic. Let's pray as we gather around God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you for the day we've had and the church community that you've brought together here. I pray you'd unite us and build us up as we gather around your word now. Amen. What was Jesus' mission? What was it he had come to do? You see, knowing someone's aim defines how we relate to them. Last month, many of us went to the ballot box and decided between candidates based on their aims. So many films and stories feature a twist where we learn that a character's goals are not what we thought they were. I doubt the Harry Potter fandom would be quite so divided if there hadn't been so many twists and turns in what we learned about Snape's motivation. Likewise, when you're watching a film in the Terminator series, whether or not you're rooting for Arnie very much depends on which of the films it is and why he's come. And what has minor consequences in fiction has much greater consequences in real life. As I said last month, it defined who we wanted to have authority over us for the next three years. It would certainly affect how likely you are to listen to or follow someone. If I said, come on, follow me, it would make a huge difference if I was intending to go on a trip to the pub or a trip to Afghanistan. So then, what was Jesus' mission? It's an important and defining question. What it was will affect whether he's worth us following. It will define whether or not we can ignore him. It's at the heart of how we relate to Jesus. And it's an important question for Luke, the author of this biography of Jesus. He tells us at the start of his book that he's writing that we might have confidence. That he's writing an account of the things that have been fulfilled so the reader can have certainty of them. So for Luke, it's a hugely important question to ask. What did Jesus actually come to accomplish? And when we listen to this account of Jesus telling his disciples what he's about to do, we learn that Jesus came to complete the prophets through his shameful death. And we also see the disciples' lack of understanding of what Jesus is telling them. And Luke records this so that his reader can have confidence. They can have confidence that Jesus completed the prophets. They can have confidence he did that through his death and resurrection. And they can have confidence even when others can't see it. So have confidence that Jesus completed the prophets. Trust that his death is the story's climax. 
Rest assured that he brings the promised kingdom into being. Look with me at verse 31. (coughs) Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Over the past few weeks in Luke, we've heard Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. We've heard him teaching about who will receive entry into that kingdom. If we kept reading, we'd come to two accounts giving us examples of who gets into the kingdom. Here we are, right in the middle of all that, and Jesus takes the twelve to one side for a private lesson. Some extra tuition, you might say. It seems that Luke is making sure we know how important this moment is by telling us that in it Jesus was focusing on those twelve he'd come aside with. And what is this super important exclusive teaching given to Jesus' closest followers? It's his travel plans. We're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. There Jesus is explaining to the twelve the reason why they're going to Jerusalem. The purpose of this journey which the reader has spent over half of Luke's gospel following them on. You can just imagine the team huddle. Listen up, guys, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything the prophets wrote is going to be completed. The word in the original language that is translated in our Bibles literally means to bring something to its end point, to bring it to completion. So the entire witness of their scriptures, the whole story of God's work in the world, Jesus is saying that by going up to Jerusalem, that is going to be completed that he's going to bring all these promises to their conclusion, that all of the hopes of Israel will be fulfilled in what he is going to do in Jerusalem. And in particular, we should think of the prophecies which talk explicitly in that term he uses of himself there, those that talk about the Son of Man. It seems that Jesus wants the Twelve to think initially of Daniel 7. Daniel 7, which... Our youth should be very familiar with, in which the kingdoms of the earth are overthrown and an everlasting kingdom is given to one like a son of man. We know that this is central to how Jesus understood what he was doing. We know this because when he's being tried by the priests, he said, From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Jesus wants the twelve to know that by going, up to Jerusalem, he's bringing about that everlasting kingdom, the kingdom we've seen over the past few weeks, where the humble are exalted, where mercy is given, where eternal life is received, not earned. The kingdom is being brought about by Jesus going to Jerusalem. That's the mission of King Jesus, to establish that kingdom. And this has a number of implications for us today. Firstly, since Jesus claimed to be this son of man, this fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament, he cannot be just a good moral teacher. I say that because good moral teachers do not claim to be the fulfillment of hundreds of years of promises and hopes and prophecies if they're not 
The fact that Jesus has done this means he must either be more than a good teacher or less than a good teacher. But he cannot be just a good teacher. After all, if someone were to do this, they would either have to know that what they were saying was a lie, and then they're a liar, which I'm sure we'll all agree is not being a morally good teacher. Or they'd have to believe it themselves despite it being false. If that's the case, and their claims are false, then they'd have a very poor grasp of reality. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather not take moral advice from a madman. So since Jesus has claimed here and repeatedly to be the divine king of Daniel 7, he must be, in the words of one writer, C.S. Lewis, either liar, lunatic, or lord. And therefore, as Lewis puts it, let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. And Jesus' claim to complete what is written in the prophets has two more implications. Firstly, if we respect Jesus, then we must respect how he defines himself and his mission. If Jesus says that his mission is to complete what was written in the prophets, then we must respect that. We must then look to what the prophets have written, not to our own ideas and likings, in order to understand who Jesus was and what he did. And we'll consider what that looks like more in our next point. But fundamentally, and on a very practical level, it means we cannot separate Christ from the Old Testament. If we want to have a clearer understanding of who Jesus is and what he accomplished, then we cannot let our Old Testaments gather dust. Finally, and dare I say most importantly, we can have confidence that the prophets have been accomplished, that their promises completed in Jesus. We've noted already that Luke is writing an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us so that you may have certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke wants that first reader to be confident that Jesus is going to Jerusalem completes the witness of the prophets, to be confident that this has been fulfilled among them. He wants the reader to have confidence that the prophets have been completed when faced with opposition, with people claiming that the prophets have not yet been fulfilled, to have confidence trusting in King Jesus was the right choice, rather than waiting for another fulfilment. And when we see how Jesus established the kingdom by completing the prophets, we should have the same confidence. We should have the confidence when we're faced by the claim that Jesus didn't fulfill the prophets, and when we're faced by the claim that Jesus was one in a line of prophets that didn't end with him, but with a later prophet. We should have confidence that Jesus achieved this because we can look at the account of his death and see that this claim of his to fulfill the prophets was true. And we should have this confidence because it was what Jesus said he would do. Jesus tells the twelve what's going to happen so they and we can have confidence that Jesus completed the prophets. 
But that raises the question, how was Jesus going to establish his kingdom? Was he going to lead a revolution to bring in this kingdom from Daniel that would last forever? Boot the Romans out and send them packing? Having read the passage, I'm sure you can see that this isn't quite what Jesus had in mind. Instead, he wants the twelve to have confidence that he's going to complete the prophets through his death and resurrection. In the same way, Luke wants his reader to have confidence that Jesus completed the prophets through that shameful death and resurrection in Palestine. Look down with me at verse 32 and 33. And I'm going to actually read this from a different translation of the Bible. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now, the reason for using the ESV there was that it doesn't ignore the linking word from the original. For he will be delivered over. For or because. What Jesus says after that explains why he said what before, why what he said before is so. Everything that is written about the Son of Man will be fulfilled when Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Why? How? Because he will be delivered over, mocked, treated shamefully, spat upon, beaten, killed, and on the third day he will rise. Can you imagine the shock of the disciples? With the way Jesus started talking about the Son of Man, they would have expected the overthrow of the nations that were oppressing them. Yet here Jesus says his kingdom will be established by him being handed over to those very nations. And that those Romans would degrade him and kill him. It doesn't exactly sound like a kingdom winning victory. And yet that is exactly the kind of victory that Jesus says he is on his way to win. He clearly realises that what is needed to liberate his people is a king who would die for them. Who would die to liberate them from their sins. That for those who humbly repent to receive mercy, there must be a sacrifice. We just need to look a few pages forward to see what Jesus thought he was doing. In Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus says this, It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. There Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before him. And if we look back at what Jesus is quoting, we'll see how he understands what is going to happen at his death and resurrection. Isaiah 53.12 says this, Therefore I will give him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus understood that he was going to pour out his life for others that he was going to be numbered and punished with transgressors, with those who cheated on and rebelled against their creator, the God of the universe. That he was going to bear the sin of many, 
taking their punishment for their rebellion himself in their place. To return to our section of Luke's biography of Jesus, Jesus knew that he was going to establish his kingdom by dying for its people. That he was going to be the very sacrifice that removed God's wrath. The very sacrifice that the tax collector in the parable we read two weeks ago was asking for to work for him. And what's more, look down at verse 33 again. On the third day, he will rise again. He knew he would rise to rule over his kingdom, loving its people and delighting in them and bringing them into life forever with him. And again, knowing that this is Jesus' understanding of his mission means he must be either more than a good teacher or less than a good teacher. Because good teachers do not falsely predict that they will die and come back. If I said to you now, I'm soon going to be hit by a bus and rise after three days. I would not be a good teacher. Because that isn't going to happen. To be a good teacher and make that kind of claim, the claim would have to be true. And for that claim to be true, Jesus would have to be more than a good teacher. He would have to be God's promised king. He cannot be a holy prophet and make the claim that he would be killed and rise again unless that claim is true. And we see him make it repeatedly in the Gospels. Those of you who've been with us and walked through John at fellowship groups over the last two years will know just how many times Jesus says that he is going to be killed, that he is going to die for his people. And if those claims are true, then he's more than just a prophet. He's the one who brings us into God's family. And what's more is that as we go on in Luke, we see how right Jesus was. We see him handed over to the Roman governor. We see him mocked and spat upon and flogged and crucified. And then we see him raised to life at the end of the gospel. And what a wonderful reassurance that is. To know that we can be confident that Jesus has accomplished everything he set out to do. To know that his kingdom has been established And you and I have been invited in to know that you and I can have confidence of that because we can look at the history and see that everything happened according to what Jesus said would happen here. The crucifixion was no tragic end of a life cut short. It was the victorious coronation of the Son of Man. And once again, we need to let Jesus define his own mission. We need to let Jesus explain the significance of his own death. It can be so very tempting to reimagine Jesus into a Jesus he wouldn't have recognised and his death into something far from the mission he undertook. To think that we know better than the very man suffering on that cross what his death meant. We do that whenever we take the cross away from the centre 
of our Christianity. And it's so tempting. One vicar um, with connections to places close to my heart pointed out this temptation. In popular notions that make Jesus more acceptable as Jesus the beautiful example, Jesus the iconoclastic rebel, Jesus the mystic guru. We need to keep Jesus' own understanding of his mission central to our lives following him. We need to keep Christ, the crucified and risen king, central to our life as a church, central to our proclamation, not just by putting the cross in the centre of five windows, but by having it at the centre of our thinking. And there's a huge irony to our temptation to, or to drift towards other pictures of Jesus. It's massively ironic because most of those pictures find their fullest form when we see them through the lens of Jesus, the sacrificed king. For example, it is so tempting to want to think of Jesus, the loving saviour, our friend. And that's a good and true picture. But it's a good and true picture which we have no greater example of than Jesus, the loving saviour, degraded and dying for his people. When we see the creator of the universe voluntarily crucified, Jesus hanging from nails through his wrists, all the while as creator of the universe, consciously holding together the atoms of those very nails. Each wound he endured that he could have healed, which we know he endured out of love for us. If we feel shame, Jesus our Saviour knows what that feels like. He was shamed, stripped and beaten, mocked and killed. As he gasped for breath on that cross, he carried our shame. All the guilt that accuses us. And it was nailed to that cross with him. What greater act of love. What greater picture of Jesus our loving saviour. Could you and I ask for. And yet it is so tempting. In our proclamation of the gospel. To shift towards things that are more palatable. Yet. I want to say this gently. Jesus, the miracle worker. Jesus, the healer. The message of Jesus as those things will never save people because it's Jesus on the cross that establishes his kingdom, that forgives his people's sins and makes a way for them to come in. And in that is the most important implication of Jesus' words here. That we can be confident Jesus has completed the prophets through his death and resurrection. We can be certain that his kingdom was established at the cross. You and I can be sure that he loved us enough to bear our sins. To be treated with the shame we deserve and to die in our place. We can be sure of what he's taught us in previous weeks. That those who humble themselves before God will be exalted. 
that the kingdom is theirs, that it is ours if we'll receive it like little children. We can be certain that although we bring nothing to the table, God will bring us into his kingdom. God will bring us into his kingdom so that we can know and delight in him. We can be sure of all that because we've seen the price that has been paid. We've seen that Jesus said he would accomplish this by his death and resurrection. And we on this side of the cross have seen that happen. If you're here and you wouldn't say you're a Christian, I just want to encourage you to look at the evidence. To look into the accounts of Jesus' life and death because this faith is rooted in history. And I'm sure there's someone in your life, whether sitting beside you or that you know at the office, who would be more than happy to do that with you. Investigate whether this happened. Because if Jesus did rise from the dead, then what he said here is true. And if what he said is true, then you can be sure that if you trust and follow him, you'll be welcomed into eternal life in the kingdom he's established, where there's no more sickness or death, where we can know our creator and his love forever. His forgiveness and love are there for you and me, whoever we are and whatever we've done. When we see the price, how can we think that we could ever have done too much to be forgiven by the one who went to the cross for us? Now we can have confidence that he's done this by his death and resurrection. Finally, we can have confidence even when others can't see it. We might ask when we look down at the last verse of the passage why Luke includes it. So look with me at verse 34. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Why does Luke include this? Why? It's such an odd verse. And if he must include it, why does he make such a big deal out of it? Because in effect, here Luke says the same thing, three different ways. Three times we're told, effectively, that the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was telling them. But why? Why dwell on it instead of just glancing over it or ignoring it? Well, as I'm sure you've heard, repeated things are important things. So Luke obviously doesn't see this as incidental, but wants his readers to note the fact that the disciples, indeed the twelve apostles, did not understand what Jesus said here. Even after all this time travelling with him, they could not understand what he said about completing the prophets by being killed. It seems that even at this stage, they couldn't get their heads around the idea of the Son of Man dying for his people. Certainly when we see the twelve at other points, they seem to want Jesus' victory to look, well, more victorious. But why tell us about this lack of understanding? Quite probably, Luke has included this to give his reader a healthy dose of realism. 
If even the twelve did not understand this after all the time with Jesus, it should come as no surprise when others don't. It should come as no surprise to the first reader when those in Israel and in the synagogues around the Mediterranean who do not see Jesus for who he is. It should come as no surprise that there are those who cannot see the fulfillment of the prophets in Jesus' shameful death. And since it should come as no surprise, it should not shake the reader's confidence. They should have confidence even when others can't see it. They should be confident that it is Jesus who opens blind eyes to see this fact. And we would see that for ourselves if we continued reading on into the next story that Luke records. Um, Perhaps something to go away and do in the week ahead. And likewise, you and I should have confidence even when others can't see this. When they can't see Christ the King in the cross. We should be confident even when others can't accept Jesus because they can't look past the shame of the cross. We should not be surprised when people, even within the church, drift towards a more appealing picture of Jesus than the broken man upon that rugged cross. When they want to preach something more palatable. And perhaps most importantly, we shouldn't be surprised when we find this tendency raising its head within ourselves. No, we should not be surprised, but we should be confident in Jesus' message and mission, even when people can't see it. We should be confident seeing that Jesus has done what he said he would. And seeing that, we should be confident that he completed the prophet's that the hopes of all of God's people are fulfilled in him, whether people see that or not. We should pray that God would open blind eyes to this, because it is only God who can do that, as we saw last week. It is only God who can do what is impossible for man. We should pray that he would open our eyes and those of others, that we might see the completion of all God's promises in that shameful death and resurrection. And we should be confident praying when we need help to keep the Christ who died in shame for us at the centre of all we do, at the centre of our lives, the way we live, at the centre of what we say to others. And so before we pray, as Jesus teaches the twelve and Luke narrates that encounter, we learn that we can have confidence that Jesus completed the prophets, that we can be confident that he's done this through that most shameful of deaths. We can be confident that he knew he was going to rise, and indeed that he did. And we can be confident in this even when people don't see it. Let's pray. Almighty God, We ask you to uphold this, your family in this place. This family that our Lord Jesus Christ was content to be betrayed for, was content to be given up to the hands of wicked men and to suffer shameful death on the cross. Keep that cross now central to our lives 
Help us to be encouraged by your love that we see there. Help us to be confident, to trust in you and what you've done. Keep that at the centre of our proclamation and our lives as a church. Help us to keep the main things, the main things. And merciful God, who made all people and hates nothing that you made and neither wills that any should perish, but rather that sinners should be converted and live. Have mercy upon all atheists, heretics, heathens and Christians. Take away from them all ignorance, hardness of heart and contempt for your word. And so bring us home, blessed Lord, to the flock of your son, Jesus Christ, that they and us may be saved among the remnant of the true Israelites and may be made one fold under Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, the true shepherd, who died for us, who rose again, and who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. Amen.